You're listening to Red Nation Online. You're listening to the Paul James and Soccer Podcast. Commentary and analysis by Paul James, former Canadian soccer player, television analyst, coach, and member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame. Well, here we are with episode 22 of the Paul James on Soccer podcast, and the CONCACAF Champions League group stage kicked off for Toronto FC, while the Vancouver Whitecaps struggled through another disappointing performance on the road. Let's start off by getting your analysis of the events in Panama City earlier in the week, Paul. Sadly, once again we saw in the Champions League match between TFC and Panamanian side Taro FC pretty much everything the Canadian soccer fans have come to despise about the CONCACAF region. Diving and disrespectful play from a Central American side, and very suspect refereeing from the Cuban crew overseeing the match. It was generally embarrassing, and I'm wondering if, as someone who played in CONCACAF with the Canadian national team, as well as coached Canadian national teams in the region, if you think the situation is actually getting worse. I can, you know, feel the uh, angst of uh, many supporters. Uh, that, that really, let's be fair to uh, to Canadian soccer supporters, whether in Vancouver or Toronto, they're probably getting more exposure now to a Concacaf play uh, than they ever have in the history of the game here. Um, from the fact that we have clubs now involved in the uh, Champions League in Concacaf, that we have the uh, television coverage, which is, uh, you know, truly remarkable. Uh, compared to back in the 80s when I would have played. So, you know, it's hard to gauge, really. Um, um, when we went down with the national programs, it was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't great. You could you could see the difference between um, between the refereeing when you were in Canada and in North American Soccer League and in the CONCACAF region. But it wasn't uh, as obvious as, uh, as what it seemed the other night, at least. Uh, but again, I think it has more to do with the transparency of the industry uh, more than anything else. And uh, you, you know, I thought uh, the game against uh, Toro was uh, was uh, you know exaggerated on what would be the norm that you would expect in uh, in Concacaf. Maybe it was just a bad game, even for uh, the, the Toro team from Panama. Maybe it was a bad game for the uh, for the Cuban referee and crew. It was uh, it was not good. That was uh, for sure. But again. You know, before we as Canadians start throwing too many stones, you know, we have some problems in our own country, and it might not be with necessarily the refereeing, it might not necessarily be with uh, the, the amateur game, but we have our own issues, and if people were to really look at uh, how we go about our business in some areas, they could throw stones as well. I think that, uh, that the reality is, when you talk about the diving, when you talk about the, uh, the pulling the shirts and, and, or feigning injuries, or poor referees, because we look at referees in a certain way. You know, it's a cultural thing. It's a soccer cultural thing. Uh, John Luca Vialli wrote, uh, you know, a great book uh, probably over a decade ago now, uh, Italian Job, I believe it was called. And I remember reading at the time, and he talks about uh, he talked about uh, a lot of that that goes on in Italy and in uh, you know the Mediterranean uh, teams and countries in that area and uh, how that uh, in many ways that uh, if you trick an opponent, if you trick a referee, it's, re- it's respected. And, uh, and it's because it's respected, it's a cultural thing. And to change cultural ideas and ideologies takes a long, long time. And, uh, and therefore, 
you know, we can either moan and groan and throw up our arms about it, or we can accept it, you know, for what it is. I mean, you know, be unhappy at times for sure and be disappointed. But really, you know, collectively, we have to accept that this is the this is what we have to do. And to be fair to Toronto FC, I mean, so imagine all the supporters. This is what I didn't quite get: is that all the supporters? Uh, I, I retract that. Not all, but a lot of the supporters and a, and a good portion of the media were up in arms about that. But at the same time, Toronto FC go in there and actually win. Uh, and again, it's about dusting their hands down, coming out, and so well, we got three points. And I thought that uh, as much as the game was was poor in, in in some areas, and maybe some of the individual performances were poor, the bottom line is in a very difficult environment, you know, almost at the equator, um, you know, with humidity being there, the heat, and you've got difficult referee and difficult opponents, and you go in there and you get three points, you know, two one. And there's no away goals rule. This is a this is a league table. I thought it was a terrific performance for them to come out of there, and and that's how you have to deal with it, you know. And it's it's about our mentality. And I think if uh, if our Canadian national teams are going to get through, because the media now is so transparent, and so are supporters' voices out there because of the blogs and because of the uh, the YouTubing. Uh, taping of uh, people giving their opinions. So those p- opinions are influential. They're influential on players at times that they can buy into those things and make them excuses and away they go and uh, before you know it, we start losing those games again. You know, I really think it is about an understanding. It's not about that it's it's right. Uh, it's not about that we don't need to make improvements in CONCACAF. We do. In my opinion, I would recommend Joe Guest uh, from England that's been living in Canada now for the past 10 years and has done an outstanding job with our uh, with our own Canadian referees. He would be a perfect consultant or somebody else from FIFA to come into CONCACAF and really, really work and see and build a strategy of how to develop referees where it's uh, much more convergence on uh, understanding of how to... Uh, to implement the rules, the FIFA laws of the game, you know, within games, no matter where they're played. I mean, that's a long-term process, though. And in the in-between, we need to understand that it's a fact of life when you go into a different culture. It's a cultural thing. And in many ways, those fans see it as that. They see and and if uh, somebody tricks uh, an opponent and the referee doesn't see it, the fans are happy and they think that that's okay. That's a cultural thing. So uh, we need to be a little bit uh, more cautious is, uh, is my final note and final message on that. But, um, you know, overall, I would have said that uh, for Toronto FC, it was uh, a done and dusted game. They got their three points and they got out of there and, uh, you know, and now they're in a reasonable position to qualify. So uh, that was good for them. Looking at Toronto's performance on the field, TFC was without Torsten Fring- Frings for the match against Taro due to suspension. Thus, we've now seen Toronto use the 3-4-3 formation both with Torsten Frings and without him. How do you think TFC did defensively without their most experienced player? Yeah, I, th- I thought they did okay. I thought uh, in the second half that they got pinned back, and that was uh, more because of uh, Panama or Toro from Panama throwing numbers forward. So almost, you know, they, they had four at the back uh, in the end uh, for most of the, the second half. But uh, I thought they did okay, but they were... Uh, you know, they were vulnerable, um, for sure. They missed his uh, his experience, but, um, you know, uh, people tend to give a lot of criticism to Ty Harden, but I thought he did a, a solid, he gave a solid performance with a solid role that he did in there. And uh, again, you know, it was, uh, it was um, 
everybody behind the ball. And at times I thought uh, we could have done a little bit better on the counter-attack, particularly in the second half with the distribution and the uh, maybe Platter needed to release the ball a little bit, uh, little bit earlier. But uh, overall I thought, um, I thought at the back and throughout the team that uh, it was in, at times a clumsy performance and a clumsy game. But, uh, but they got the two goals that mattered in the first half. And it was sort of strange from, from, uh, from Panama's uh, perspective. Uh, and I keep saying Panama, but it's obviously Toro. But if, if you look at the, the reports before, that defensively they were very strong. It was a very strong team. Well, in the first half, you wouldn't have thought that because they themselves were clumsy and uh, made a couple of really poor errors that opened up and TFC uh, you know, took the... Uh, took the chances. It wasn't a, a beautiful game. Aesthetically, it wasn't for sure. But uh, again, I, I repeat from the first question that um, you know, it was, it was about getting three points in a difficult environment, and that's what they did. And defensively, they hung in there as much as they were under pressure at the end. Um, it was a definite penalty from De Guzman. Um, you know, that's the, that's the other side of De Guzman. You know, I thought he's done quite well in the last few games, to be fair, and he scored a goal. And many people say, well, that was a lucky goal, but uh, it's the old, um, if you don't buy a raffle ticket, you don't win a prize. And I think that uh, de Guzman is more prepared to shoot now under Aaron Vinter than I've seen him in a long time. And uh, it's producing a few results. But the other side of that is the fact he gives away a penalty because defensively, uh, as much as he's putting in the efforts, you know, he's always looks susceptible to uh, giving away dangerous fouls. But aside from that, I thought that collectively they defended well in the second half and hung in there. One of the recent TFC developments since the start of the second half of the season has been Vinter's use of more of the TFC Academy graduates. Matt Stinson has been a regular starter in the last few games, and Ashton Morgan and Donnell Henry played a fair amount recently as well. What do you think of how Vinter has brought along some of the team's young Academy graduates this year? Yeah, I think he's making a statement there. I think that uh, he is... He is showing that it's important to have local domestic uh, players being involved at that level. I think he's cautious. I think he doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the amount of experience. If you can't perform or perform poorly, he's going to pull you off. He's going to hook you off. And he'll do that with young players as well. So I think he's cautious in how he plays them and implements them into the team. But I think he's definitely, it's part of his mandate coming in here, it's philosophy, which I think is uh, a great one. You know, I was part of uh, Toronto Blizzards years ago in the old NESL. I was very fortunate to be part of that with Bob Houghton, who was a terrific coach from Europe. And, you know, he came in and he brought a lot of international players. You know, uh, it was amazing some of the players in the old NESL with, with uh, the Toronto Blizzard. But he, he just kept playing Canadians all the time. And it was the only way that we were ever going to uh, develop and get the chance. And you had to, you know, chew grass in many ways, meaning that you really, really had to work and work and uh, take some, you know, take some criticism at times and take some hard knocks and hard games and criticism from even players that you're playing with because they're at, uh, in many ways, a different level. But, uh, you know, it took courage for Bob Howden to do that in that era, and it's going to take courage for Aaron Vinter to do the same in this era. And it looks like he's prepared to do it. And I think um, it, it's a long-term project, you know, because as opposed to some of the American players that are, that are thrown in at the deep end, they just seem to be better prepared, and they can go in as 18- and 19-year-olds and not only perform well game in, game out, but they can actually, uh, you know, look like... Uh, you know, top shelf players. You know, I'm thinking of the uh, the Breck Shea 
from um, you know from Dallas. So um, overall, I thought that they've done well. If you look at Prack, he used you know Daniel Henry last year. He went and he did quite well in the game, the exhibition game, and then he went down to Concacaf and within 20 minutes they brought him off because he was a fish out of water. And then this year he's played uh, some, some decent games, but uh, looked vulnerable at times. And that's the learning process, you know, that he's gone through. But uh, Aaron Vincent notices it right away and pulls him out. So quite like Ashton Morgan, I think again he's a project. Out of all of them, the one that looks uh, the most composed, and, and particularly against Chicago, was uh, the Matt Stinson. You know, in a wide position, he. Uh, I, I think out of all the players on that particular night, he was the most assured and probably didn't. Uh, uh, didn't look like uh, like he was going to make a mistake. He played very efficiently, worked hard. And uh, when we talk about the Toro incidences with players diving and uh, feigning injuries and trying to trick the referee, you know, Matt Stinson gets absolutely whacked against Chicago, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute, but he gets absolutely clobbed in that. And uh, anyone else from that part of the world would have stayed down there for uh, five minutes and a stretcher would have been brought off. But Matt, Matt Stinson just shrugged it off and, uh, and just got up and, and got on with it. And I think that's a good indication of his character. And um, if that's reflective of what's going on at the academy, then I think that's a positive sign of things for the future. But it really comes from the top and the leadership. You know, it's uh, question marks can be asked in Vancouver where you're Canadian players. At least in Toronto, they're now beginning to uh, surface. You've got a couple of the experienced ones in Julian and uh, Terry Dumfield is, I'm sure, going to be in the lineup at some point. But um, I think it's a good, it's a good approach. But um, we need to look at it with caution because I don't see any of them as being real pedigreed coming through. I think they're going to come in and be steady players, steady Eddie type players uh, once they have the experience. But um, I don't see any Paul Pesciolito coming through. Paul Pesciolito from the old CSL days, when he went to England, had a terrific career. Was uh, I remember as a 17-year-old, him playing for the Toronto Blizzards, and, and you could tell instantly that he came out that he was a game-breaker and he was a star star in the making. Hopefully, uh, that kind of Canadian player in, in the domestic league here now, which is the MLS for us, will surface at some point, but um, I don't necessarily see it in these three. Toronto also played a league match on Saturday and fell 2 nothing on the road to the Chicago Fire, a side that has also struggled to win this year. Former TFC fullback Dan Gargan scored the goal that pretty much sealed the victory for Chicago as Toronto hit the post twice but looked pretty ineffective in terms of creating scoring chances. Recently, we've often lamented the state of the team's defense and back line, and I'm wondering what you thought about TFC's offense against Chicago. Well, I mean, you know, first of all, they hit the post twice, and I think that... um you know, you could sort of maybe leverage. I haven't heard uh, Aaron Vinters, because we're obviously doing this right after the game, but I haven't heard uh, Aaron Vinters' comments, but I'm hoping he's not going to say they deserved anything from the game because, you know, they, were, uh, they weren't cutting edge uh, in the final thirds. They didn't really create uh, things. They were sort of a long-distance shot from Julian de Guzman that even, wasn't, even that was not that powerful. Um, it's good to see De Guzman uh, taking strikes, though, because, again, I think he has the ability to score from those distances. But aside from those two strikes, they were really lacked the creativity in the final third. There was nothing cutting about their play, nothing really creative, and nothing really convincing. You know, um, So that's, that's my thoughts in terms of, uh, of attacking and then defending. You know, and, and maybe it was reflective always round, except for Torsten Frings, who I thought was outstanding. I thought he was excellent. Uh, in that position, got 
beat maybe once on pace and then maybe gave the ball away uh, uh, one other time. But aside from that, he was absolutely outstanding. But uh, aside from that, it was uh, Iro and Eckersley were, were hot and cold in just about everything that they did. You know, I mean, at times you could look at Eckersley and say, well, he had a great game, but then he, he totally knocked the ball out of play for apparently no reason. You know, he did it two or three times and then... Uh, and then uh, did some other things in a clumsy way, and same with uh, with Iroh, who at times looked great and at other times looked completely clumsy. And I think it was a thread throughout the team that uh, it just wasn't one of their better performances. They were uh, they were missing passes, they were missing runners. And if you look at the first goal from Chicago, you know we talk about playing three at the back. Well, Chicago showed you how to beat beat three at the back is by somebody making a deep run. You know the third man run that you work on in training where they, uh, they built up the play nicely and uh, Martina probably is why he got, uh, got taken off because Aaron Vincent would have been mad about that. But he got caught sleeping with his pants down and uh, the guy gets in behind him and uh, gets free to, uh, to make a, a good cross. And even though when the cross came in, Andy, Andy Iyo showed his inexperience of how to defend. In that situation, when you're at a six-yard box, you have to keep your eye on the ball. You have to get down low and look at the ball. You can't be upright and just defend in the play. You have to know where the ball is, and you have to look to get that block. So, you know, they got uh, they got uh, their pockets picked on that one and uh, showed their vulnerability and their inexperience still in the defending part of the field. And here's the other thing about this particular game is the performance of Chicago. First of all, Frank Lopez, who's a household name in Chicago for the past 25 years. I mean, he's a Chicago boy. And I uh, used to play for them in the indoor league. I remember him. He was a really, really good player. So now he's, he's, uh, he's involved in the organization and, and now goes in as an interim coach. And uh, they, they played well. I thought they were effective. They worked hard. They were slick going forward. They had pace that was threatening. And uh, defensively, they were they were solid. So, you know, it's uh, it, it's one of the worst teams in the league this season. You know, beats Toronto FC. It's uh, always round disappointing. You have to say that. And again, it's where uh, you know everybody needs to be cautioned as far as getting too excited about um, you know Toronto FC's uh, recent um, good performances. It's not about being down on them. But it's um, also understanding there's still uh, a lot of work to be done in the off-season and into next year. Well, if TFC um, needed to be scored on in this game, um, you know, from a, a fan standpoint, I would expect most, you know, Toronto FC fans were probably a little bit happy to see Dan Gargan doing the scoring. Was his goal the high point of the match for you? Well, you know, and I would say we don't have to apologize for it. I don't think people have to be... Um, you know, somewhat happy. I think they can be happy for him, and I certainly was. I mean, at, at times when Dan was here and trying to be a critic of him, I mean, and, and really just about his play, not about him as a character or as a person. Clearly, he's a, he's a terrific character. And I have to say this, this is the irony for me about Dan Gargan, is that when he got uh, traded, he actually um, played, the, I'd seen him play better under uh, Aaron Vinter than, than any other coach, and he'd actually showed that he was improving. He was more comfortable on the ball, he was more short, he still had that uh, tenacity when he was defending. So, you know, but business is business. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with Toronto FC for, uh, for moving him out. I mean, that is the business that you're in. But, um, you know, I'm deli- I was delighted to see him um, step up and score. And not only that, I thought he had a, he had a really good game against a difficult opponent in, in Platter. And eventually Platter was, uh, 
you could, he was not to be seen in the second half, really. I mean, you didn't notice he was playing, and that was all credit to Dan God. But it was a terrific goal, and uh, again, what are the odds that uh, former Toronto FC players just go somewhere else around, and they're either becoming top goal scorers, uh, top players on their team, or uh, at the very least scoring against uh, their former team. I mean, it, it truly is, you know, uh, quite uh, extraordinary, you know, and it, I sometimes wonder about Toronto, you know, I just wonder about, um, you know, it's a great city, it's a cosmopolitan, it's the biggest city in Canada. Uh, we get the, the players and the team and the organization, uh, MLSC and Toronto FC, get such scrutiny, get such uh, uh, media coverage and so many opinions and so much, uh, at times, criticism. And I'm part of that, uh, at that uh, uh, roundabout with uh, given information that, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, it seems to me that it could well be a, a factor. And it, uh, it's, uh, it's not that we should stop, but I think it's something to be considered. It could be a factor, you know, in terms of affecting other players that come in here, that, um, that uh, and even the team, and even the team's decisions, you know, about whether the team is management, uh, not so much maybe when Aaron Vinter and Bob de Klerk are here, but maybe prior to that with, uh, with management being malleable based on uh, what their feelings of the criticism and the voices coming from, uh, coming from supporters or the media. Because, you know, it seems to be uncanny that players leave uh, Toronto FC and go and get uh, great, uh, great uh, success elsewhere. I mean, you look at LeBrock, who was, uh, was the same thing when he went to Shivers. So, um, you know, always round, always happy for Dan, Dan Gargan, but... Um, but uh, Toronto FC need to look at this game and know that they need to up it uh, for the rest of the season, not just in the Champions League, but uh, in the MLS itself. Otherwise, they, then with Vancouver, we got the two bottom teams coming from Canada in the MLS, and that wouldn't be something to look forward to. Moving over to the West Coast, the Vancouver Whitecaps suffered, suffered another loss on Saturday with a weak performance against Portland. Once again, very basic defensive errors did the team in as it has been an error-filled season on the back line, regardless of the players that Vancouver has trotted out. What did you make of Vancouver's performance from a defensive standpoint? Well, defensively, I thought they were poor, you know, and, um, and when you concede from a set play and you concede early in the second half, you know, you, uh, you, uh, you have a problem, really. I mean, there's, there's, some, there's some issues now there in Vancouver. I said a while ago, the important thing is, is that the wheels don't fall off in Vancouver. And it's uh, beginning to look like that they are, and it looks to be like a, a lack of self-belief. Uh, Tommy Sohn uh, looks a little bit beaten up, um, and I feel for him, you know, like if you've uh, ever been in that coaching fraternity, I mean, it is uh, a nightmare right now what Tommy is going through. Uh, but we've talked a lot about that before. But um, but with the team itself, when I talk about self-belief, you know, it's why when you coach, and you're in that environment, but any environment that you're in, and uh, and you're talking, you get beyond the the, uh, the age groups of the 14, 15, and winning really truly becomes uh, important. Uh, you know, it's it's if you don't win, if you're the coach and you produce a team and you don't win, uh, no matter what you say, no matter how much charisma you have, no matter how much you motivate and you're positive with your players, they begin to lose belief in you is that uh, you give them information, you go out, they, they do the best they can to uh, implement that information, and you still go out and lose. At some point along that journey, they're going to begin to lose uh, faith in you as the coach. 
And so it's, that's why it's critical. That's why a lot of coaches and leaders at that level are, are, are on edge because uh, it's a very unforgiving world. And I cannot help but think when I watch that game against Portland that, um, that uh, as you alluded to there, I think, Steve, with, uh, with the defending part of it, you know, where there's a little bit of concentration. I mean, how can it be that, uh, that they're not lively at the beginning of the game, at the beginning of each half, at the end of each half, where they're playing, you know, with real passion and real, like their life depends on it. And, uh, and it just seemed to be missing. And sometimes it's uh, a lack of self-belief, and I think somewhere along the line. But um, I'm not too far off the mark on that one. You know, as far as, uh, as the rest of the season, though, goes, you know, for Vancouver, they, uh, those players, whether they recognize it or not, what they need to understand, uh, each one of those players, is that every game and every minute they play now is going to be scrutinized by the new incoming coach. And if Vancouver were to finish bottom of the league, which looks very likely at this stage, then you know there's going to be household changes. So if I was in Vancouver I would be, and I was playing, I mean, you really, truly would uh, need to be playing like your life depends on it. Like every single play, the amount of effort that you're giving forward and, uh, and uh, showing that you belong. So they have plenty to play for. You know, every one of those players, because uh, as Hashley, there's been lots written in the Global Mail recently about Hashley and how much he loves Vancouver. And I like Hashley as a player, don't get me wrong, but let's just use that as an example. And it's great. You know, as people come over here into North America, and they say, and particularly Canada, because in my opinion, we have the uh, best, best country in the world. And I prefer to live in Canada than the United States. I love the States too, but take Canada as Canada, and it's where we live. But uh, it's great that, uh, that Hashley comes over and loves the mountains and loves the... Uh, the uh, scenery and loves the restaurants and nightclubs well that's great but let me tell you what you come out and you perform and you produce and you'll be able to stay in Vancouver but if you don't perform and you don't produce then you're not going to be able to stay and again that might not be in reference to Hashley because I thought he's done uh, terrific this season but it could be in reference to anybody else that plays in Vancouver and anyone that plays in Toronto you know and it's it's, it's, that's the nature of the game that you're in. It's a professional game. It's a great uh, environment to play in in Canada. And uh, that's, that's what I would be suggesting to each one of those Vancouver Whitecap players. I mean, they have to get results. If they don't get results, then I think there's going to be a bit of a cull at the end of the season once uh, Martin Rennie comes in because uh, he's in the business of winning. This is his first opportunity, and you can see he's an ambitious and motivated coach. And uh, he's not going to like what he uh, saw the other night against Portland. And I have to say this, John Spencer, on, on the flip side with Portland, because I remember Portland came in, I think, on this very podcast. We talked, uh, I think I mentioned that I wasn't overly impressed with Portland. And I wouldn't change that if I saw the repeat of that game. What I am impressed with is how they've developed themselves throughout the season, you know, with bringing in a few key players. Um, and uh, and keeping their cool and keeping going and they're on the fringes of making the playoffs they still might not make it but I thought they were terrific uh, on the day and deserved to beat Vancouver there One of the positive aspects of the match was the atmosphere and fan support at Jeldwen Field Regardless of which team you support it was great to see that type of crowd at a soccer match in North America Do you think the Portland Timbers have set a new standard when it comes to the fan experience at their home fixtures? Well, I'm not sure about they've, uh, they've set the standards because there's uh, been a few teams before them. And, I, and let's acknowledge the Vancouver Whitecap fans that, that go there. I mean, that is it's just terrific. I 
mean, each of those organizations, Seattle, Vancouver, and, uh, and Portland, deserve great credit, you know, because they're in touching distance where they can take, uh, you know, fans. I would like to see them open it up so more fans can go in from the away section because, you know, you get five to 10,000 fans away. I mean, 10,000 might, you know, the stadiums are small. Uh, might be unrealistic, but you get five, six thousand fans from the away team in there, and they can cause, you know, you know, ruckus in terms of the atmosphere and noise, and um, you know, just, just tremendous. So Vancouver, you know, they deserve tremendous credit for taking that amount of fans there. But overall, it was, it's just a brilliant stadium. I mean, they've done another great job. But let's not forget uh, Seattle, and let's not forget that uh, LA. To be fair to them have been around for a long time, and so have uh, D.C., who've had uh, good supporters groups. But in terms of the full package, and, and of course, let's not forget Toronto FC. I think Toronto FC was the turning point in terms of soccer-specific stadiums and getting those fan supporter groups coming together. I mean, they were the ones that really, truly set the standard as far as that goes. But I wouldn't say Portland were, were any better than Seattle. I think Vancouver are going to be, when they get their uh, new stadium, they're going uh, to be up there as well. And so, you know, I, I just think it's fantastic. You know, it's, uh, it's changed days in uh, North American soccer. It's just about developing and building things bigger. And um, to be honest, I just wish I was in those uh, stadiums watching those games. I mean, because it's, uh, it's uh, truly fantastic. We really are on the roundabout of uh, global football. The Canadian men's national team will play their first World Cup qualifier in September 2nd. And Stephen Hart is expected to announce his call-ups for the match sometime during the coming week. Are there any players that you would like to see selected that weren't part of the team that played for Canada at the Gold Cup? Um, well, I think you've got your, your mainstays that weren't there, really, that you, you, know, you would uh, think would be part of the, um, the, uh, the, the squads, you know, the World Cup squads. I, I think it's a period for Stephen Hart, you know, where... Um, there's a tendency, you know, I, I knew you were going to ask this question, uh, Steve, and um, I was thinking about some of the young players, you know, some of the young Toronto FC players, but the timing's not right, even though we could make the uh, uh, the pitch that it's against some of the weaker teams in uh, CONCACAF. As Stephen Hart quite rightly says, there's no there's no easy games in world football these days, and I think it's about all business, all businesses uh, starts right from the game. Uh, on September the 2nd, and uh, they can take no chances. So I would go with your most experienced squad. And therefore, you know, hopefully Patrice Bernier is available now and uh, recovered from injury. Even if he's not perfect, I think that is an environment where you can bring Patrice in and uh, still give him minutes and still give him uh, some game time if he's, uh, if he's on his way back to a good, uh, good fitness. Um, and uh, who else wasn't there? I mean, it was, uh, you know, Yakovic from uh, DC United uh, got injured just prior to Gold Cup, so you need to draft him in. I thought he's done quite well uh, back playing for, uh, for DC United. Uh, Olivia Oshun, I think if, if he is playing, uh, you know, his club football, and I think it really is dictated by that, you know, Paul Stolteri potentially, but if he's not playing on a regular basis, when you're World Cup coach, you know, it's very difficult to um, to then get them and then select uh, select players, and particularly if they're beginning to age. You know, I think um, so. Paul Stolteri, unfortunately, get double whammy there. You know, he's 33 now and um, and not playing in Europe. I mean, that's a tricky one to draft him back in. But Olivia Ocean, I would to um, to take another look at him. He's uh, he's a good player, in my opinion. The one that stands out that I'm a little bit surprised on, knowing uh, it might be a decade ago and seeing him perform. Uh, in the World Championships, Youth Championships in 2003, is Ian Hume. You know, I'm quite um, 
quite confused about why uh, he hasn't done quite as well uh, with the national team program. I mean, you know, I can I can see at times that he's played and maybe um, athletically it's a different level. He can't compete, but it's not like we have an abundance of depth of talent. And uh, the one thing about Ian, if you look at his uh, background, where every club that he's gone to, his uh, ratio, he's scoring a goal every three games. Yeah, I mean, just about. And I think that's an impressive uh, stat. And again, he's a Preston North End and uh, he's done well. So uh, I would sort of look at him because he can play and he's sort of an electric type play. It would be great to bring off the bench, but wouldn't let you down if he started. And, uh, you know, you really need to look at, um, at every option, I would say. So that's, that's what I would look at. But um, again, if uh, Stephen Hart didn't go with somebody like Ian, then, um, you know, I don't think it's going to be the, uh, the decision that's going to uh, prevent Canada getting through this particular round. So he's in a strong position from that perspective. But looking in the long term, um, I would say for sure Patrice Bernier and for Yakovic and, uh, and Ocean. But uh, maybe in Hume is uh, worth another look to uh, be drafted in. With the recent Canadian Soccer Association announcement that all three of Canada's initial home World Cup qualifiers will be played at BMO Field in Toronto, many supporters have complained that the matches should be spread across the country to give more Canadian soccer fans a chance to attend a game and to give Canada the true home field advantage that they don't usually get in a very multicultural city like Toronto. St. John's Newfoundland was where you and the rest of the Canadian team that played in the 1986 World Cup clinched Canada's only World Cup appearance with a 2-1 victory over Honduras. Assuming that Canada moves on through World Cup qualifying and has to play against some of the CONCACAF teams ranked above them in the world rankings, should Stephen Hart and the CSA consider match locations outside of Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver in order to give the team more of a true home field advantage? Yeah, I, you know what, Steve? I don't think so. I, I, I really don't think so. It's a totally different uh, era. It was 25 years ago when we were qualifying, and um, and uh, it was a different time, you know. And, uh, and when we were, I remember that game very specifically going into uh, into Newfoundland. It was a small, tight field, you know. From uh, uh, from a uh, an international soccer venue, it really was not an international soccer venue. So in today's global world of football, you know, it's almost unacceptable that you would play in an environment that would be under those conditions. You know, for it was a tight field. It sort of suited us, and it suited the direct play of Tony Waiters and the way that we competed and played. But uh, it wouldn't necessarily, that environment, that wouldn't necessarily suit our Canadian team. It would almost harm them in, uh, in, in some ways. Now, the atmosphere would be electric, and it would be... Uh, um, you know, not relished by the opponents, but I don't think it would give us a huge advantage in our own style of play. And uh, and and aside from that, as I was alluding to there, we we really need to set a standard. There needs to be a minimum standard of where you play international World Cup qualifying games in your own country, because you're selling yourself to the world. I mean, truly, and and we really want to be into, uh, I would say, in a situation where. Where um, you know you're on a on a level playing field with uh, with how we go about our business, and we don't want to trick opponents so much so that we have to go to uh, you know to a, a posted stamp field, you know, on the furthest east part of the country. I think for youth tournaments, uh, I, I could see the uh, smaller communities and smaller venues being. Um, you know, much more feasible, and uh, that's where we could get the exposure for those uh, areas of our beautiful country. But uh, for World Cup, 
I think it should be in the urban centers where you've got great support groups. I think it's up to the supporting groups to really get behind the teams and make sure that the majority of those fans and supporters out there are, uh, are Canadian and they're wearing a Canadian flag and Canadian uh, scarves and Canadian colors and, uh, you know, and really make themselves heard. I think that's going to still take time. But um, I think each of those urban centers, you're going to get packed out stadiums for our World Cup if we get through this uh, preliminary round. And to be fair, Steve, just uh, full stadiums, I, I just have this feeling that uh, at this stage of our development with the exposure that we're having, I think the CSA are doing a much better job, the supporters group, the Voyagers, of promoting Canadian games and Canadian World Cup qualifying, that I actually believe that not only will get packed stadiums, but uh, there will be more Canadian supporters than foreign supporters. There will still be the contingent of, uh, of Jamaicans or Hondurans or Mexicans if uh, that's who we play. Hopefully when we get to the uh, semi-final or, or the final round of qualifying. But, um, you know, uh, maybe I'm, a, I'm an idealist or an optimist, but um, I'm thinking there's going to be more Canadian fans in, uh, in each of those uh, urban centres, Toronto, Montreal and, uh, and Vancouver, than there would uh, be foreign supporters. And that uh, was, uh, would be great to see, and I think it would definitely help uh, our Canadian team get some, uh, some points at home. If you have questions that you'd like Paul to address, please send your email to pauljames at rednationonline.ca.